What is branding? And how is branding different than marketing? And where is the overlap? How do the two work together to help businesses sell more of their products or services? Today on uh, Restaurant Strategy, I'm sitting down with a guy named Joseph Zala, sharing my interview with him, uh, where we're going to talk all about that. He's been doing this for a very, very long time. He works with food brands all over the country. He's going to apply some of the insights he's learned over his uh, career uh, and, and show you how to apply some of those lessons and insights to your own business. Tons of great tactical information. I promise you, you don't want to miss this one. Stick around. There's an old saying goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast for anyone who's looking. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close and this is Restaurant Strategy, a weekly podcast all about helping chefs and operators build more profitable restaurants. Each week we toggle back and forth between a monologue style format and an interview, but the goal is always the same, to take some of these complicated concepts and make them both understandable and actionable. Why? Because like I always say, information is only as valuable as the action it inspires. Now. This week's episode is sponsored by Virtual Restaurant Group, VRG. They offer innovative, turnkey, delivery-only brands that you're able to easily operate out of your existing restaurant with very little disruption to your current operation. So we're talking ghost kitchens, right? A restaurant that would only be visible on third-party delivery sites as a way of driving additional revenue using the infrastructure you've already got. By adding virtual restaurant brands into your business model, you're able to diversify your revenue streams and generate more overall revenue. You already have a kitchen, right? You've got a staff. You've got the space to do it. Why not maximize your square footage by adding additional brands to help you increase your bottom line? Best of all, VRG handles everything on the back end. They provide Cubo technology totally free. The very architecture of this software allows you to turn on as many brands as you want, list those brands on as many partner sites as you want, and field all of the orders through one singular tablet and printer. You're not locked into any long contracts, and it's 100% free to start. VRG's flagship brand, Midnight Munchies, was one of LA's very first ghost kitchen concepts and generated up to $30,000 a month just in online ordering revenue. Onboarding is super easy with recipe guides and step-by-step -step training for you and for your staff. Visit virtualrestaurantgroup.com slash chip and use the promo code CHIP2021, that's C-H-I-P, 2021 to get started. That link, of course, is in the show notes. So my guest on today's show is Joseph Zala. He's the managing director of a company called Vigor. It's a restaurant branding and marketing agency based down in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm thrilled to be joined. Uh, Joseph, welcome to the show. Hey, Chip. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here as well. So Joseph is just writing this book, uh, which we're going to spend a great deal of time uh, talking about, uh, called The Bullhearted Brand. It's uh, not your first book, right? You've got two other books? Yeah, yeah. So the first book I wrote was called Fire It Up. And uh, honestly, it was a collection of articles I had written with some glue in between. And I launched that in 2011, I want to say. And I... 
I wasn't really happy with it after the fact. So I launched it. I got it out there. Uh, my thinking behind it was I'm going to put together a brochure. And then I realized that nobody wants a brochure. Uh, no one's <laughs> sitting at their desk or behind the uh, the grill saying, gosh, I hope someone delivers me a really cool brochure. Um, <laughs> and so I wrote a book instead. And when I look back on it a couple years after the fact, I, it just didn't have the right tone. It was a bit of piss and vinegar. It wasn't, um, it wasn't as positively charged as I am as a human. Uh, so I, I, I canceled that after a few years. And then I wrote another book called Stop Blasting My Mama, which is uh, all about email marketing for restaurants and my uh, vehement hatred for the word e-blast or email blast. Um, you know, because uh, I think I say it on the, on the blurb, um, the recipient is my mother. So please stop blasting her. Uh, <laughs> and then this is now the third the third book. And now this is uh, so much. So I've, I've read the book. I got an advanced copy of it. Uh, thank you, Joseph, for sharing that with me. Uh, it's really, really good. Um, I just finished it uh, this past weekend uh, while I was away out of town at a wedding and um, I'm thrilled that I read it. I'm going to it's a really dense read. It's an easy read. It's like 190 pages or something like that. But it's really dense. There's a lot of information, a lot of case studies and examples. Uh, and I want to spend a great deal of time I'm talking about this book, it seems like so much of your work, so much of you is in this book. This seems so if you're saying you weren't really thrilled with fire it up, it didn't have the right tone, it didn't have you, it was not what you're really proud of. This, tell me if I'm wrong, this feels very much like you, the, the guy that I've gotten to know over the last several months. It's um, It feels like a really good representation of like who you are, what you believe, and, and what your agency is all about. Tell me if I'm wrong. That's 100% correct. Um, that's that's where I think the first, where fired up went wrong. Um, you know, I was young, little little angry. You know, I was in the throes of the uh, the Great Recession. You know, and uh, I had just moved to Georgia from Pennsylvania, and there was just a, a bit of frustration. And I think it really bled through in in, in how I wrote things. Um, this one is that buffed up, edited and cleaned up for who I really am and how I've built the culture of vigor. Um, and it really is, for lack of a better term, a dump of knowledge out of my brain. The things that I know, the things that I think, the beliefs that I inject into the, my team and then therefore into our clients. And so I think it is a true representation of our mantra, which is do it with vigor. It's a really generous book, which is something that I really love. It's it's It doesn't seem like you held anything back. And I've read books in the business space that do this thing. They give you just enough and they say, if you want to know all the stuff, you got to hire us, you got to come here. And it seems like you did the opposite, which is that this is everything I know, this is everything I believe, this is everything I would do for your brand if you came to us. If you want to go do it yourself or take it, here's the playbook, here's how to do it. And if you can't do it yourself, um, then we're happy to, to talk to you. It doesn't seem like there's so many books, again, in this business space that feels like a sales pitch for the agency. Um, and that's not what this is, which is really cool. It seems like you've just laid it all out. So I want to start there and I want to start at the beginning. What is branding? What is marketing? What is branding not? What is marketing not? Where's the overlap? How do you define that? Yeah, I think what's great about the word branding is I'm seeing uh, a turn of the corner for a lot of industry leaders in their understanding of what branding is. So for a very long time, when you said branding or brand, logo, first thing they thought of, logo, how do you look? What are you saying out there? Uh, and that misses such an important part of the branding equation. For me, at the risk of sounding like a carpenter that only sees nails, branding is everything. It is 100% the whole entire system. It's the nervous system of a, of a company and their products. and. Um, the reason why I think that is 
essentially when you're talking about branding or when I'm talking about branding and brand strategy, it has only there's only a small component that is aesthetic and visually or verbally driven. It's more about the heart and the purpose and the passion and the reason for doing things with the intent of communicating to people and uh, getting them to adopt you as honestly a friend, you know, so I like to think of brands not to, um, add more metaphors to a book that's centered around bulls, but I like to think of Brana as a human. And so when you go out in, into the world, what you're trying to do is you're developing rapport with people. You're trying to build relationships, even if it's with a, a high hello, how are you when you go to your local coffee shop? Or if you're in you know, a business meeting, you're, you're trying to gain trust. And when you do that, in a way that's authentic, you get a lot of traction. When you do it in a way that's very flimsy or, or thin, you tend to come off like snake oil salesman. And so that's how I think of brands and branding in general. It's about building authenticity with the intent of gaining trust uh, and, and having a mutually beneficial relationship. Um, and in this case for restaurants, it's I plan on making you delicious things and I hope you plan on paying me for them. Yeah. And then so then the other piece to that, the other part of my question is marketing. Then then where's the overlap and, and where's the uh, the separation? Yeah, so the separation between branding and marketing, in, in my opinion, is marketing is about how you're going to communicate, about how you're going to relate, uh, meaning the places that you plan to engage, the messages you plan to send. But it is it starts with branding as the core. So um, a good way of thinking about this is when we talk about um, how you're greeted at the door at a restaurant. So you could say, I prefer to say, hey, y'all. You could say, I prefer to scream, welcome the chips, you know, really loud at people. Uh, what what parses out what's the right choice there? Um, and, and you certainly could leave it up to the whims of whoever is at that location, whether it's a manager or a counter help person or a waiter or a hostess. Um, or you could take a step back and say, that's one more moment that either reinforces the belief in the brand that I'm promising, and therefore we should think about it. So a good example of this is uh, we had a client for uh, a little over a year called EG's and we they they serve they're out of Tucson, Arizona, uh, moving into Phoenix and they create their flagship product is a, a fruit slush is the best way of putting it. It's kind of like a, an Italian ice that is slushier and doesn't really melt um, fast. It's really delicious. Definitely full of sugar, but very delicious. <laughs> and. Um, you know, when we were saying for them, when we were developing their brand, we identified a group of people that we really wanted to speak to the most. Um, and then we start talking about those those greetings. And more importantly, sometimes, uh, especially if, if you talk to Danny Myers, how do you say goodbye? It's because it's such a big opportunity. So you could say, have a nice day. You could say, thanks for coming in. Uh, the list goes on. But we really zeroed in on take it easy and uh, take it easy. Just match their vibe wonderfully and it also became a component of their brand's verbal identity with the tagline take it easy have an eg and so it was another reinforcement and so it's not about being cheesy or gimmicky it's about again building that authenticity and so when we talk about marketing marketing is a suite of tactics and opportunities where you can reinforce the claims that you're making from the core of, of the strategy, which is branding. Branding is strategy. Yeah. It's so funny. I think about, you know, it's easy to look at some of the biggest brands out there and Apple is, is overused, but I'm going to use them again. 
you know, where their mantra and they, they've got their mission, they got their vision all, but their mantra, um, as has been written about is empowering the individual and that everything is about, you know, that, that your iPhone is different than my iPhone because we've personalized it in the same way that, you know, you log on to Amazon, you have a different experience. Um, you've, your, your iPhone is, is individual. It's unique. It allows you to do the things that you need your iPhone to do. And I use my iPhone to do the things, um, that allow that, that I want to do it. It's about the creator. It's about that creative spirit. And it, it links into, um, the way that they design their products have the audience in mind, the way that they, uh, that interaction, the, the way they design their store has the audience in mind and how they wish, uh, number one, the audience they wish to cultivate and they wish to attract uh, and the relationship they wish to fortify with that, um, you know, and on and on and on. And then we can debate whether they've succeeded 100%. Mm -hmm. I think it's um, more than most other brands. I think they have succeeded in that idea of, again, empowering the individual. It, it is, you can make your devices what you want them to be. It is it is about expression. It's about, you know, so much from, from the app store to iTunes tunes to um to the to the iphone to you know you can go on and on and on to, to how they've how they've done that um, and that's the the interesting kind of um intersection for me of of how i think about these things how mm -hmm. um i think the beauty part and what you're saying in this book i think tell me if i'm wrong um is that a lot of people don't think in terms of this they don't um use the example here as like you know, some guy says, uh, you know, you should open a restaurant. Like everybody tells me I should open a restaurant and my food's really good and you, you should open a restaurant. So they open a restaurant. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that you're that they're not going to succeed, um, but that alone isn't going to guarantee success and that there's a whole lot more that goes into that that should be thought about, that should be kind of baked into the pie. Um, and you spend a great deal of the book talking about the pie itself, you know, like showing how the sausage is made. Can you talk, let's open up that conversation and talk about that. Like, what should people be doing? What, where do they make mistakes? What, what do you see very often people don't think about in that situation? Yeah, I think the first mistake that people make is dishonesty. And I know that's kind of a harsh word. Uh, but when I, what I'm, what I'm referencing by that is if we talked about this a little bit before the show, unfortunately, no one heard it. Um, so it's numbers are numbers and you cannot finesse math. Um, math is math. And so if you jump into owning a restaurant because, you know, your friend Sally and her husband, you know, Bill think you make the best hamburgers in the world, um, <laughs> oh, like Sally that's nice because <laughs> freaking Bill, Bill loves my hamburgers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's great. It's great that you have that support and it's great that people love your food. That is such a tiny component of, running a restaurant. A restaurant is very much a business. It is not a glamorous hobby. It's not really oftentimes a glamorous business. Um, so when you're, before you even decide to open, you really need to run those numbers and you need to be honest about them and you need to be brutally honest about them. Um, and I think what a lot of restaurateurs would find out if they really sat down and, and worked their numbers, they don't have a solvent business. Their business is held together by the sweat of their brow um, and, and the grease of their elbows. And if something happens to them, they're done. Which is something, which is a lesson we learned over the pandemic is that if anything, it's, it's a house of cards. If anything moves out of place, um, it all comes crashing down, you know? So before the show, Joseph and I were kind of, you know, just getting warmed up and, and, and talking about things. And, uh, one of the things we we're talking about is that how crazy it is 
that double digit profit margins in the restaurant industry are like the unicorn. Um, you get it. They, they throw you a parade. They give you a trophy. You know, if you uh, find a build a business that runs 10, 12 percent profit, it, it's uh, basically unheard of. Uh, of course, it exists, but it's very, very, very rare. And yet in any other market, in any other industry in this world, a lot of businesses don't even go into business unless they can guarantee 20 to 25%. So I'm going to make a widget. I don't care what widget I make, just as long as I can make 20% or 25%. We make this widget for 22%, so as long as it makes more than that. Yeah. And so how do you get investors? How do you raise capital when you say, well, I might make 6% or 2% or uh, maybe if, if we're clicking on all cylinders, 10%. And what happens you know, when all those optimal conditions are not there? Of course, we hope we're not going to have another global pandemic, but there are always hurricanes that crash in the middle of vacation season. There are always blizzards that, that crush a city for, you know, for five days at a time. And a lot of times, if you lose five of your 30 days in a month, there goes all your profits. That's, that was, that's how tight you have it. So in any event, I, I wanted to, that was kind of what we were talking about before, before the show. And, and that's, and that's part of this, this, this house of cards mentality. So it starts with making sure you're absolutely solvent and crisp and clean about your money. Yeah. And being honest and being willing to, uh, it's a, it's a pretty vicious term, but kill your darlings, you know, um, you can love them all you want. And look, you always have the opportunity to cook burgers for Bill and Sally anytime you want. You don't have to own a restaurant. The, the second component when you, when you, when you've worked the numbers, um, I just can't reinforce enough to not get glamorized by spreadsheets because you can make anything work in a spreadsheet. Just tap up that one number. Hey, look, you have a solvent business. It's about being real, being honest, getting some feedback from experts like you, Chip. I mean, you 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 know P and Ls with the best of them, you know, um, and and really thinking through it. And then there's the question of: Is there a space for a hamburger restaurant? Like, is there really? Um, what what what's really going to make your hamburger restaurant unique besides the fact that? Every quote unquote, everyone tells you you make the best hamburgers. Um, and that's why, you know, for Vigor, we land on this tagline. People don't buy food. They buy experiences. It's not meant to piss off chefs. Believe me, we know they're purchasing food. Um, but it's really it's that experience, which is the brand that people buy into. Otherwise, you know, why do some people go to Burger X versus Burger Y? Uh, technically, it's a patty. It has stuff on top and between two buns and it's probably pretty yummy or else they would never have opened or lasted a week. Uh, and I think the difference is it's all the things that influence the perceptions of that product. And that stems from uh, purpose, the personality traits, which guide the way the place looks. And that question of does this brand, do all those components align with my values that I want the world to see? And so in the book, we, we talk, um, I, I think this is kind of our magic sauce at Vigor. We, we talk about the patron, uh, which is our word for target market and uh, or audience. I just, I can't stand the word target because I think it's very violent. And I don't think that's how you should talk about friends. Um, instead, we say patron. We want to foster patronage. And so our patrons... All of us are patrons for brands. We have a persona we want the world to see as humans, as individuals. Uh, maybe for me, it's design-centric, savvy, and uh, confident. Well, when I'm looking to project that to the world, I of course, I look at the clothes I wear. I look at the hairstyle I have, the car I drive. And the list goes on of all the brands that we have access to. 
I'm selecting either cognitively or subliminally brands that help me show the world that I am those traits. And that that doesn't stop with restaurants. I'm not going to go to you know, goofy Jill's down the street to get a hamburger just because it's tasty when I have an option of going to a higher end burger place that helps me tell a story about my design centric, confident self. Um, when you focus in on that, you start to have a really powerful basis for fostering a brand for a group of people. And that essentially, I think, is the magic of branding. And when you're starting a restaurant, what you should really be focusing on. If there's a burger place that is the down I'll say down and dirty, but I don't really mean like unclean. Uh, the down and dirty, like uh, five guys of the world, it's a burger and it has some cheese on it. The end, <laughs> you know? And then yep. over here you have, oh, this is the $25 burger place with the high end and the fixins and the chef driven and the farm to yada, yada. Um, is there space there for another opportunity? Maybe it is the, the goofy Jill's house of burgers um, where it's fun loving, it's upbeat, it's, you know, whimsical and it doesn't take life too seriously. There's a whole group of people that are looking for that and want that. Yeah. I mean, this, this gets into that conversation of, of positioning and like the positioning matrix and, and understanding where your space is, where the white space is um, or the blue, the blue ocean, right? Where everybody goes over where there's chum in the water and all the sharks are feeding on it. But like, there's all this ocean, and so is there is there room there? Um, a couple of years ago, I don't know, I guess about 10 years ago now, here in Hell's Kitchen in New York City, where I live, uh, the, a place opened called Boxers. It was a gay sports club, and it was, mm-hmm. like, brilliant. Like, you think in a, in, a, in a city as big as this, there aren't gay men and women who want to be around other people in their community but also love sports? Like, you're crazy. And the fact that it didn't exist before then and it's packed all the time and it's like a sports bar it's just a gay bar it's like you know who's going to make the sports bar for you know focused on women like there are women who love sports there are women who would go out to a sports bar except all the sports bar we have are very like macho male centric and all of that like there's opportunities and we talk about positioning right and you're talking about you know identifying you're talking about you know market analysis and understanding you know where is there room in this market, right? So you, you make your burger for Bill and Sally. How is it different from any of the 15 places? So you just wrote this beautiful book and, and I'm in the, I'm about halfway through uh, writing my first book. And in it, I talk about this thing of like, in the introduction, I said, you know, we don't need just another anything. We've already got places we know, like, and trust with, 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 with people who know us, uh, dining rooms that are as comfortable as our, as our own kitchen and with food that we've come to, to really appreciate and, and rely on. Like, if you're going to come in and say, well, this is better than that, you're just going to, you know, or, or you've got to supply a really compelling answer to get me to switch from something I already know, like, and trust, I rely on, that I go to on and on, that my kid knows, that, you know, all of that. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing. It's that, like, if you're going to enter, you better have a really compelling reason. Because if we enter a market, we are not the first to the market. There are other dining establishments. So you have to provide an answer uh, as to why they should come to you, why they should come back to you over and over as opposed to any of the others. And you can tell that story a bunch of different ways. But for me, that's what comes down comes down to marketing, right? Who has a problem? Whose problem are you solving? And how do you convince them that you are the solution to their problem? And how do you convince them in compelling ways over and over and over again? Um, how do you keep telling that story? And we do that through stories and 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 all and all of that. So 
when you get started with branding and you said uh, everybody always says you know branding and they think about the logo they think about the font they think about the color scheme you know the, the visual representation of this uh, but the first half of the book uh, before you even talk about any kind of you know or any kind of mark um, you're talking all about experience you're talking all about relationship with the audience um, you do you turn this these marketing peas on their heels a little bit <laughs> and you talk about uh, purpose, personality, product, presentation, and position, um, which really struck me. I mean, there's all stuff I know um, or I've thought about, but you articulated it really beautifully in a way that I hadn't heard of um, conci- you know, concisely in, in a way that I think um, is really easy to understand. Can, can, you, can, can we talk about that for a few minutes? Can you give us a little context for that section of the book? Yeah. Um, actually, can I pin that for one second? Because you brought up a really good scenario uh, with sure. this, bringing something to market because it's the best. I talk about this a lot. Um, you have you just put it very nicely, and that's very chip of you, um, <laughs> which is great. Uh, <laughs> but it's something we come up against so much in this industry where it's like, oh, I'm making this hamburger restaurant because it's the best. And I'm like, oh, is it? Is it? Oh, the amazing. Trap. The better trap. Yeah, it, it's such a terrible thing. So um, an anecdote for you, I was in Philadelphia um, meeting with a potential client and I was across the street from the client at a, a diner, I think it was, just having some eggs with uh, my, my peer who was going into that pitch with me. And we were looking at the menus of the restaurant we were about to meet with and just reviewing, brushing up, making sure we had our, our ducks in a row. And... Um, the owner of the restaurant comes up, points at the, it was a pizza menu to be specific. He says, our pizza is better. I'm like, oh, is it? He's like, yeah, yeah, you should try it out. I was like, I bet your, your kids aren't ugly either. And he's like, what? I was like, of course you think your pizza is better. It's your pizza. I was like, that's not a compelling argument. And in fact, you turned me off because now I think you're full of shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and so the, the better trap is the laziest messaging. Um, you know, cause again, of course you think your pizza is amazing. Of course your food is the best. If you thought your food was not the best, you wouldn't have started a restaurant. Um, yeah. you know, so yeah. I, I love that you said that and that, that marches into the question of the peas and what we call the golden lasso, which is, um, it's a visualization of what brand strategy is and, and I think how it operates. Um, you, everyone's heard, or at least so many people have heard the idea of purpose, Simon Sinek you know, very famous for it. I, I, I clapped when I first saw his TED talks. I'm like, okay, this guy put it into terms that I had a hard time doing. Um, purpose is the why, you know, why are you doing this? And this is a little bit of a, a newsflash or a hint. It's not because people are hungry and they want to be fed. Um, it's not because you have the best something. Um, there is a bigger why, uh, it's also not a capital reason. You know, I want to make money. Because uh, as you articulated earlier, profit margins are usually kind of thin. Um, <laughs> there are way more businesses that are better. I mean, I love this why conversation. And again, Simon Sinek did put it so well. Um, but I think what you start getting around is uh, getting to here, and, and maybe I'll touch on it, this idea that there's like there's two sides to this why, right? Like, why do you want to be doing this? Why do you need to be doing this? And why does this need to exist? Which kind of invites the patron, um, invites the guest into that conversation, brings empathy to the table. Like, why do I want to be doing this? Why am I going to put all this time, energy, passion, all of that into this? But then why does this need to exist in the world? Um, And I think inviting people to supply that answer, I think, is really important. 
Yeah. And it's, it's, it's extremely important because when you understand the purpose for this thing to exist, the vision, the, the, the ding you're going to make in the universe, it, it opens up the door for some of the other components of a brand strategy. The, the second layer underneath the purpose is also vitally important and it's the personality because wise purposes, mantras, North stars, all, all the words that all the marketing people love to use. Sometimes they can be similar to another concept, you know, so for Chipotle, their why centers around sustainability. Um, it's not making burrito bowls, it's sustainability and bringing sustainability to the forefront of people's minds, um, blah, blah, blah. But you could still have another concept that is all about sustainability. The, the personality layer gives it flavor, pun intended, um, that helps you position yourself. So I, I go back to, it could be the same burger, you know, look, look at automobiles, talk about like sameness. It's the same thing. But this one has this personality and this one has an opposing personality. And those personality traits align with a market, help reinforce those values and adds that flavor, that salt and pepper to your person, your, your purpose. And so, if, you know, if, if my purpose is to inspire uh, restaurateurs to do something greater, that could be the same exact thing that you do as well. Um, but the way we go about it could be very different. And therefore, we have space in market to uh, I don't like the word compete because um, it's not really competing. It's just establishing ourselves in the room. Like, why can't we be at the same party and be cool? Like, <laughs> you know, why, yeah. why can't we hang out and, and talk to the same people and have people like those are two guys that are great. Um, and, yeah, and I had a, I had um, uh, Misha from uh, Mighty Quinn's uh, barbecue on and uh, Otto Sedeno, who has Otto's Tacos. And uh, Otto famously said he was looking at spaces down in the uh, the East Village years ago, and he saw that Mighty Quinn's was moving in. And he was like, you know, they were going to be doing the first thing. He's like, oh, great. That's the direction this neighborhood is going. There's going to be people can't eat tacos every night, just like I know they can't eat uh, barbecue every night. So but there's going to be people in this neighborhood who want all of these things. And, you know, he saw that and we did a whole episode about this, you know, the, the relationship between competition and collaboration. And there is this something, right? You create a neighborhood, right? A neighborhood is nothing without multiple businesses, without an ecosystem. Um, and, and they all help, uh, they all help the, the neighborhood rise and all of the businesses rise. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's so true. And yet people, you, you have people that still have this aggressive industrial era uh, thinking about competition. You must squash them. You must run them out. And I say to people, anyone that's coming to me looking to pioneer uh, a concept, you know, food, never been done before. Oh, it's going to be great. It's going to take the world by storm. I always remind them that pioneers died of dysentery. You know, <laughs> pioneers actually resorted to cannibalism. You know, that's a Donner Party joke. Um, <laughs> you know, so let's let's be careful with how excited we are about pioneering because it it's not very glamorous. Um, instead, looking for those um, complementary concepts, those complementary foods, like you said, is a brilliant way to establish a neighborhood because another place where a lot of restaurants fail is they go into a place that has only one facet of traffic. Um, you know, for instance, a very high corporate following. So you got great lunches because all, all the buildings are there, but nobody lives there. Or if they do, they leave the area at night to go somewhere else. Not a good space. Uh, and then if a pandemic hits, no one's going to work anyway. So you're done. Um, 
Instead, you want to create those pockets because step one is getting people there. And you're not going to do that as the sole offering. Um, instead, you're, you're going to want to find some power partners. So if you're a burger concept, look for where the salad and the tacos and the barbecue is going. And then you guys all high five in the middle because you have people coming there. And then it becomes a selection of hunger and not a selection of, you know, or craving, not a selection of, do I want to drive the whole way there just for that? Um so it's a really brilliant thing. And I think that that goes into your product layer. And so the, the brilliance of, uh, or at least, of course, I think that it's brilliant because it's my book. <laughs> the brilliance of uh, the Golden Lasso is it's layered. It's not singular elements that sort of overlap. It really is from the inside out. And then that all ladders up. So the purpose, your why, affects the how, um, which is the personality, which affects your product. And I think that's another place where people go go uh, wrong. Um, when you know what your personality is and you know your purpose, you should be able to scrutinize and evaluate your product, the, the food that you put out, the drinks you put out, the way and, and the methodology in which you do it, your service model, uh, your times for being open. So a great example of this is uh, Taco Deli. Uh, is, is a place out of Texas. We, we did not get an opportunity to work with them, but we did get an opportunity to uh, at least get to know them a little bit better. And what I learned from them was they open at seven o'clock and they close at 3 p.m. It's taco place. It closes at 3 p.m. every day. They don't change that. And, and it was kind of perplexing because the capitalist in all of us is like, but there's so much money to be made the rest of the day. Like, no, we want to make sure our people have the opportunity to explore their passions in their, in their world, in their, in their evenings. And we think that's really important. So we close at three and we will never not close at three. Um, and I think that's brilliant because it stems from their purpose. It stems from their belief system. It also bleeds into their personality and then it has affected their product. Their product being our service stops at three because it's that important. Um, and, and that's a, a great example of how I think a golden lasso thinking really affects product. And then marketing and branding in the traditional sense, brand identity, verbal identity, visual identity, that all serves to present those things, those layers to the patron group in a way that positions it uh, against other folks or in relation to other, other brands out there. And so you're presenting with the copy that you write the visuals that you design, um, the places where you choose to market, whether it's, uh, you know, in newspapers, that's a joke, um, or <laughs> <laughs> online or email your website, the interiors of the space. And this is where we start to see more divides happen is um, usually those things are handled by multiple parties, which is a great thing. Um, but they usually don't fire off the same cylinders. A lot of architects and interior designers will pay uh, lip service to a brand strategy and then go interpret it the way they want. Um, and this is such a huge miss. Um, and it's and it's a shame. And that's where you need someone, I think, internally who fully understands the brand and how it manifests visually and can guide these teams to not just stick within a box, but understand what other boxes fit the mold, you know, and there are brands that do it well. There are brands that do it poorly. Whether you realize it or not, your website is the most powerful marketing tool at your disposal, right? It's where people go to learn who you are, where you're located, when you're open, and of course, to see the food you serve. So then why would you rely on PDF menus and static text to sell food? 
Our culture is visual and people these days want to see what they're getting, right? We eat with our eyes. Enter Pop Menu, a website design platform that puts the menu at the heart of everything. Pop Menu's dynamic menu technology serves high quality photos and allows guests to like and review dishes that they love that will then live on that dish's webpage on the site. These features all feed into your restaurant's SEO results to help you rank higher in relevant searches. What's more, Pop Menu's automated marketing tools keep guests engaged long after their purchase. You can send automated texts and emails to incentivize new orders and promote new dishes, events, and specials. Pop Menu keeps restaurants top of mind with guests. If you're a restaurant owner, you need a great website that not only looks beautiful, but helps drive more traffic and sales. Use Pop Menu to take your business to the next level. Best of all, listeners of this show can lock in one set monthly rate for life and get $100 off their first month. Go to popmenu.com slash restaurant strategy to claim this offer. Again, that's $100 off your first month by visiting popmenu.com slash restaurant strategy. As always, that link is in the show notes. So then I want to ask how you begin your work and how you would begin working with a brand. But before we do that, I guess I want to take a smaller approach because most of the people listening to this podcast are small to mid-sized operators, chefs, managers, marketers, people who work on a much smaller level. Uh, they're not necessarily thinking of, uh, in this growth mindset, they're not thinking of 300 units, they're thinking of one, two, five. Mm-hmm. But I think there's still value to having this cohesion, right, to, to thinking in terms of that. So how do they get started looking at, I mean, is it just as simple as like going back and, and looking at their why, going like, why do you wanna do this? Why does this place need to exist? And then, you know, layering these other things on top of it and personality and, and, and positioning and all, and all that. Yeah, I think it's exactly that. Like taking a step back and, and thinking, why why does this need to be there? Removing, again, the capital requirements, the fact that it's making you money. I say that in quotes. Um, all those things aside, people are hungry. You got to get rid of all that. And what's the real reason you love this? Um, I believe it was Mitsubishi organization that uh, one of the guys there who became famous for the five whys you can get to the root of a problem asking why five times and and i have found that that's really helpful when i'm consulting one-on-one with a, a restaurant owner that has one or two units i find that that starts to get to a really good um you know layer that can be built upon you know why do you want to make this hamburger restaurant why well, i love hamburgers why do you love hamburgers well because my grandma used to make them for me why does that matter? You know, and, and you start to dig up something deeper and we call that excavating. Um, we're trying to excavate that purpose. And once you have that, you really need to define three personality traits, three overlapping complementary traits. And when I say complementary, not that they're similar, but more that they work together in unison. Yep. And then you start to use that as a lens to evaluate what you're doing. So uh, another anecdote or example is we have friends down in D.C., that we work with. Uh, they're called Happy Endings Hospitality. Um, and they have a concept called Chase and Tales. <laughs> and none of these are restaurants, by the way. We, we actually have a rule like we will not work with restaurants. Um, but when we look at it, one of their traits was epic and awesome, like in the truest sense of the word awesome, full of awe. And we started looking through that lens and we're saying, well, there are a lot of places where you're not being very awesome. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, we would agree. 
Um, and so we started identifying how to adjust that. And so anyone can do this just with a bit of honesty, maybe, maybe get your cousin who's very blunt to hang out with you and give you some real feedback. Um, but the goal is to give people reason to believe that you're claiming awesome. And so when we looked at their interiors, we say, okay, great. Uh, you have paint on walls. It's not a bad interior, arguably speaking, uh, but it's certainly not awesome. Now, because we know awesome is a trait we're trying to um, trying to own and trying to reinforce, the decisions start to become easier from CFO the whole way through marketing. Uh, so when CFO is looking at the lie items, why are we going to spend X amount of dollars on this thing? It's just a chair. It's like, well, no, no, but we need awesome chairs because that's what we're trying to own. It's like, oh, that makes sense. Now I can uh, release the money for that. So decisions become easier when you have this clarity. Um, when you know your cousin Bob comes by and says, you know what you should do to your burger? You should you know, put it between two grilled cheese sandwiches and have spaghetti sauce on top. You have <laughs> the means to say, Bob, that sounds delicious. We're gonna make that at the next barbecue. Not for my concept because our concept is an elevated chef-driven you know, burger place. I like this a lot. It's funny because I was talking with uh, just a couple of episodes ago, uh, Renee Scott, who's the CMO of Ike's Love and Sandwiches, and she talks all about uh, brand filter. She had worked at um, Carl's Jr. for years, and they mm. famously had this brand filter. Like they knew exactly who they were, who they were for, and and what was in their wheelhouse and what wasn't. And they said it was very easy. Like anything in the strike zone, we did, we went towards, and anything we just let the balls go by. And you know, bringing that then to the other company she's worked with, and Ike's Love and Sandwiches is where she's at now for the last I don't know three or four years, and it's a it's a similar kind of idea. Um, so for the listener, I wanted to kind of draw those parallels there. It's a it's a similar kind of idea, but I, I like this. It's very actionable, you know, thinking about, you know, what are the things you want to own? And this goes back to that positioning, right? You're going to be a burger place, but how are you going to be different from all the other, uh, from all the other burger places? You're going to be a taco place. How are you going to be different? Because tacos are tacos um, mm-hmm. to a certain degree. So how, how are you going to do it differently? How are you going to, what are you going to own in, in the, in the eyes of the consumer? Yeah, and it's 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 such a vitally important part of building a company and a brand. Um, and, and another way to think about this, again, is hum- humanizing it. So again, I want to bring in the human metaphor, even though the book's about bulls um, or uses bulls, I should say. Uh, but it's it's easy to relate to this. So we talked just a second ago about saying you're the best. If you walk into a party as a human, and you know you tap your finger on your glass, say everyone, I need your attention. I need you to know. <laughs> that I am really cool. (laughs) You're immediately not. And it's going to take a lot to get people to believe otherwise. And so the same goes for what you're trying to project to those people in that meeting. Are you trying to project a, uh, a trusted resource of knowledge, um, who's upstanding, confident, and, uh, friendly. If that's what you're trying to project and you come in wearing torn up jeans and in a, an old vintage leather jacket and your hair is greased back with, you know, aviators on and sideburns that are pork chopped out. You're just, it just doesn't fit. You may think you look awesome as all hell. It may be your favorite look, but it does not align with what you're trying to get people to see you as. And so it very much is a values and optics game, just as with everything in our life these days, it's values and optics. And you have to build that authenticity, visually speaking. So if someone goes into your burger restaurant that, or in this case, a, a seafood restaurant, and it's supposed to be awesome and um, alluring, but you have fluorescent lights everywhere, 
uh, you know, like the shop lights and you have people sitting on steel chairs on a rickety uh, table. That's not what this place looks like, by the way. But if that's the goal, like something's off and people may not be able to literally pinpoint it, but they feel it and they know it. And 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 there there's distrust there because you position yourself a certain way in your marketing. Now that I'm here, it looks like I'm eating in a garage. That's not what I was expecting. That doesn't align. I'm probably not going to come back, even if the service and food are great. Um, if I do come back because of those and I try to bring other people, I'm going to be giving them a little uh, disclaimer like, hey, guys, this place doesn't look the best, but the food's really good. Trust me. And even then, those people are going to go there and they're still going to feel it. They're still going to feel that something's off. And we're really, really um, as humans, we're, we're really insightful and, and profound in that way because it's like we feel it and we know it and we react accordingly. So our, our BS meter flies off the charts when something's not aligned. Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, you just you just said it here. You know, we, we, we see it and we feel it. I think we do those things much better than we taste, you know, because taste, I mean, taste is a pretty um, elevated experience, right? Food is sustenance. It's how we survive. We have to put it into our body as fuel in order to have enough energy to get through the day. That That's it. We're, we're animals. We put food in. Tasting, though, tasting is, um, you know, an evolutionary um, adaptation that allowed us to make sure that, you know, that, that smell and, and taste was like to make sure that it's OK. It's safe to eat. Mm -hmm. Right. And now it's like the Maslow's thing. Right. The, the hierarchy of needs. Now we no longer have to worry. Maybe we have to smell to make sure it's, it hasn't gone bad. Um, but we're no longer we're now using um, taste and smell at a much higher place even than we did 100 years ago or 200 years ago or, or let alone a thousand years ago you know now it is about enjoyment it is about status where there's a whole different experience and again and you feel it you feel when you walk into a place I, i'm 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 really affected by this by atmosphere um so about a year and a half ago i took uh, the family to paris i'd never been to paris Mm. And I remember we made a handful of like res uh, reservations, places that we wanted to go to. And then everything else we did what you do. You just walk around and you find a great place. And for me, it was like, no, this just doesn't feel like where I want to spend time. No, I just this isn't where. And, and a lot of times that's how I made my decision. Not, you know, and, and if I had to, I could probably articulate all of the reasons, you know, everything that went into that. But more than anything else, um, this is that thinking fast and slow thing. You just make a snap decision and you go, okay, yes, or no, that's not what it, it, we're, we're, we're irrational in that way. And we're, and our subconscious is really, really sophisticated. We take a lot of information, um, compress it, and make our decision pretty quickly, usually. Yeah, very quickly. And, and so you need to have things that align with, the moment, you know, uh, I forget who said it, and it may not be a famous person or a well-known person, but you really have to set the stage for the for the play that you're trying to put on, you know, um, and that that's what it is. This is theater. This is experience. Experience is everything. And when you do it right, you help people categorize you. And I think that's so important. And it's antithetical to the way a lot of uh, uh, startup restaurateurs, even seasoned vets think they want everyone. I have food. You have a mouth. Let me get it in there. You should you should come here. And therefore, they, they create these banal, forgettable beige looks and experience, yep. you know, and it's it's not bad, but it's not good. And, you know, yeah, it doesn't offend anyone. So now it's <laughs> another famous book. Jim Collins wrote, you know, 
good to great. The the reason there aren't a lot of great companies is because we've got a lot of good companies, and good is uh, is the thing that keeps you from being great. And so, you know, how do you be great? Which is, I, I think, anybody that goes into this industry that works as hard as we do, I, I think you want to be. I think you want to be great, or I think a lot of the people that I know that I work with want to be great. Um, and again, when we're talking about you know razor thin profit margins, you know, good just isn't going to get there. Uh, get you to sustainability, meaning like a like a business that can sustain itself. Um, I want to go back to something you talked about a few minutes mm-hmm. ago. So you were talking about this um, the Stocko place in Texas, mm-hmm. open seven to three every day, right? That they know their north star, right? They know their why, and they stick to it. And I'm sure a lot of people uh, listening uh, will think the same thing that I was thinking, right? Like easier said than done. Well, they could do it because of X, Y, and Z. They don't have the the finances. They're not looking at the numbers that I'm dealing with. So. I ask you because you work with a bunch of different clients and that's the beauty of having somebody like yourself on this show because you get to peek behind the curtains at a lot of different companies and you see how a lot of companies do this or don't do this. But you find your why and you know you know who you are and, and, and why you want to exist and why you need to exist. How do you stick to that when it's sometimes really, really difficult to do so? Yeah. For them, it was perplexing to me when I, when I first encountered it. But if you look solely at just that element it can seem scary. Uh, But when you start to take a step back and you look at everything else that is affected by that, it starts to get a little easier to digest. So when you're looking at massive, let's just say massive change, like cutting hours, you know, or changing your hours of operation, you can look at the numbers and say, oh, wow, there's no way I'm going to make it, you know, work because X amount of people come in after this time. That's lost revenue. Okay. Well, you won't need to keep keep, uh, people on you know, uh, hired past that hour either. So you're saving money there. You can optimize how you're ordering food because you're not adding to the inventory to service these extra hours. Um, More importantly, especially right now at the time of this recording, staffing, labor, talent. So talk about a a way to draw people in. Hey, we want you to come work for us. We're going to pay you well. We have benefits. And by the way, you're going to be done at three every day. So you can do other things that you want to really do because we realize that your life isn't tacos Um, so that you can draw in people and you can position yourself to attract talent. And maybe some folks out there don't realize the cost of HR, of finding people and keeping them and the cost of turnover. But do a little bit of math, read some articles, you realize real quick, you can find a lot of cost savings in not having to train people every other month, not having to onboard and not run the risk of giving them having them give bad service or service that's misaligned from your brand. Uh, all that alone will make up for the fact that you think you're going to lose some cash because you're not open till 7 p.m. Um, and then beyond that moment, you start to look at, well, now your marketing messaging becomes more focused and concentrated. So everything that's in the bullhearted brand is stuff that we live by for us too. Like we practice what we preach and that's by design hundred percent. I believe this thoroughly. And so for us, I don't know how many times someone said like, Hey, why don't you start doing work for the fill in the blank of an industry? It's like, because I don't have the kind of money to market to that industry. I don't have the time or the money to develop expertise in that industry. So when I think about how we market vigor. Now my decisions are really easy because there are, I I think uh, your friend from Ike said it best. Like we have a filter. If it doesn't hit these check boxes, the answer is no. We let that ball go by. 
Um, and that's that's a really smart way. And all that stuff has efficiencies with financial efficiencies that you can draw direct lines to that make these shifts better. Now, that may mean that your current iteration is not what you'll be a month or two from now, but that's okay because you're going to find optimizations and therefore maximizations and maybe start to realize that double digit profit margin. Yeah. Okay. So this is so great. So you sit there and you, you're going to work through these steps, right? People are going to, uh, are going to be able to get this book eventually and we'll get there. We'll talk about it. Um, they look through and they start figuring out our, their purpose is their personality, then how that affects the product that they serve. And that all leads then down eventually to positioning and figuring out, you know, what's their market, how they, um, who they need to be marketing to, um, who would, who's most apt to love the things they do. How does this, does this happen slowly, quickly? You know, are there baby steps you can take to, to start putting some of this into practice? Um, in your experience yeah the bigger the ship the 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 slower and harder it is to turn but turn it will um a, a good example of that is a few years ago uh got in trouble by nick shepherd <laughs> the uh the president of tgi fridays at the time uh huffington post called and asked for my comment on their uh five dollar endless appetizers meal and i ripped it apart i was like the only way this works is if you're selling alcohol with it because alcohol you can get higher profit margins uh, I was like, otherwise it's a ploy and it seems cheap and nobody wants their food anyway. And uh, so he invited me up to Nashville <laughs> for a chat and it was a great chat. And he took me through some of the things that they've been making. And then he underlined it with like, Joseph, this is a 900 unit brand. This is a big ship. It's not going to happen overnight, but changes are coming. They are being made. And there were some great things that they learned. They learned, uh, he, he learned or his people and him learned that, oh yeah, the bar is the energy of the experience, why did we push it to the back? Why isn't it front and center? Let's shift that. So of course, moving a bar in 900 units is not something that happens immediately, but when it does, they start seeing measurable shifts ahead. Another thing they saw, while pre-packaging our food so you can boil it and dump it on a plate is quick and efficient, what we realized is by training our back of house, they had more pride in their job, which resulted in a higher quality of product. When you're hand making patties, you start to believe in the food more and you start to give it more care as opposed to throwing it in a microwave or a, you know, a turbo chef and dumping it on a plate. And therefore the end result is a customer that has the flavors and the experience. They're like, wow, this place is energetic. The food tastes good. Now I'm starting to change my perceptions of Fridays. And so to answer the question, smaller ships are easy to turn. Um, it depends how far off from the brand you are. If it's a drastic, violent shift, my my advice to you is going to be make it a drastic, violent shift. Close down, make the adjustments, retrain, and open back up as a completely different concept. Because the 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 baby steps isn't really going to be well received. People aren't going to understand why you're doing it and what the whole purpose is. But if it's adjustments, those can be made uh, incrementally on the fly. Uh, it's all about training. And as everyone should know, training isn't one session and done it's constant and it's constant building and reinforcing of, of the values. And more importantly, why are we doing this? You know, when people understand why it's being done, they adopt it quicker. Uh, we see, we saw that with uh, vigor even, you know, so I'm hounding people for putting time entries in, got to track your time guys. Come on. I need, I need to, I need to see your time. 
their perception is this is a micromanager who is desperately just looking to catch me not working. Like, no, 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 no. I need that so I can understand if we're profitable. I need to understand that to, to see this project that we spent nine months on ended up where it should. And if it didn't, then we need to figure out why. Were there difficulties with the client's uh, ability to make decisions? Were we somehow off on our strategy and the client didn't get it, yada, yada? It gives me the insights to make us better so they don't have to work as hard on the project and we can be profitable. And when they come to me saying, hey, I want a raise, I can say, you can have a raise because we're profitable, <laughs> you know? And when I laid that out for them, there was like, oh, right, that makes sense. Instantly, we saw more adoption of time tracking. It's still a pain in the yeah. ass. People don't love it, but they understand why we're doing it. And therefore, they adopt it better. And they also um, help their peers be better with their time tracking because they get it. So that, that's a really good segue. The last thing I want to touch on here uh, before we before we finish up, because uh, I'm very aware of everybody's time, your time especially today. Um, let's talk about the people because you talk about a lot about leadership. Um, you talk a lot about the the staff, right, and 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 how the the people within um, are really kind of the ambassador. I mean, I, I always use this idea of uh, they're ambassadors for your brand. They're they're the ones shaping the experience more than more than just about anything else. Um, and then let's talk about the patron. Let's talk about the people. Um, and like you just brought up a few minutes ago, at the time of this recording, uh, we're dealing with this staffing crunch. Um, industry-wide, but we had a staffing crunch a year and a half ago pre-pandemic. So um, I don't imagine this is going to miraculously go away. Maybe it'll be eased as, you know, some of the, the pandemic uh, support, you know, dwindles out and expires. But um, I, I still think we're going to have this to a certain degree. So talk about leadership and then talk about, uh, really, it comes down to internal marketing, right? How do you communicate um how do you communicate to your potential, to prospective employees, um, why they should be here? How, how do you get buy-in there? And then I'll use that, and then we'll pivot to talk about um, what that means for for patrons. Yeah, I, I think people arguably are, are the most important part of this business. Um, unfortunately, so many leaders look at them as cogs in the machine, and we're seeing the results of that thinking. Uh, the perceptions of restaurants and working in a restaurant aren't good comparatively to other industries. Um, you know, but yet they are the number one way for most people to go from honestly poverty to another rung or two or five in, 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 uh, when it comes to income and quality of life. Uh, it very much is a, a meritocracy driven industry. You know, the more you work, the more you're going to make and the more opportunity you'll have for advancement. And so I think that coupled with very basic offering of employment. Hey, come work here. I'm going to give you money for it. It just makes it very not competitive at all and not interesting. And you're not going to attract the right kind of people. So what we try to do when, when you have a brand strategy established, it starts to paint a picture of how you can position yourself better. So a, a friend and a client of ours, uh, Andrew Gruel at Slapfish, he's paying his, I mean, he's offering a lot of money to come work for him. $25 an hour, $25 an hour for back of house help. Yeah. But you know, as he's yeah. unpacking it, he's like, there are things that people want and saying it's strictly because we were quote unquote paying people to stay home is lazy. Yes, that's part of it. But what, what, what does that mean? Cause technically they're going to make more money at the job. So what are they seeing? And he started talking to his people. I'm scared to come back. Cause if California closes, I'm out of a job and out of money. 
So I'd rather just stay here until this runs out and then figure out what's next. Um, so it's understanding what you can truly offer them. Uh, I'm a big proponent of benefits uh, for, for employees. I don't think it has to be this scary monster that ruins your bottom line. Um, if you work your numbers, you can find a way and, and it should come through and you should see benefits as a result. Um, I'm not a big fan of minimum wage across the nation. I think uh, that should be very much a locally uh, addressed issue because $15 an hour in you know Monroe, Louisiana spends a lot different than $15 an hour in Atlanta, Georgia or LA or New York, you know, uh, is, is $15 an hour really good in New York? I would say, no, it's not like you can't do much with that. Um, and so I think having these tough conversations and then looking through the lens of the brand, what benefits, what amenities are you offering for employment at your restaurant? Is there a path to grow? And maybe that growth is not with the restaurant. You know, maybe maybe there's a ceiling, which some restaurants would have, especially single unit operators. Maybe there's a way to start to integrate uh, college help, um, you know, helping them realize their dreams like Taco Deli. It's like, hey, we realize that tacos aren't your life, but you need to make money. So we're going to offer you a place where you can do that and then have a life. And that's important. So it's we need innovation here. And I, I don't use that term lightly. We need people to look and think different, uh, you know, like Apple, on how can we create employment and careers and a good relationship. And so in the book, we we talk about, I use, uh, throughout the Bullharder brand, I use stories involving bulls as a delivery mechanism for tried and true um, uh, lessons. And so for this one, we use the 95, 96 Chicago Bulls. And I'm not a basketball fan, but it's a brilliant tale of teamwork and a dream. And you have leaders on that team who uplifted everyone else. You had a well-oiled machine that was well-coached because the coach wasn't, um, he wasn't driving solely for the win. He realized that the win was in the glue that that team and the chemistry that team had. And so there was a lot invested in that. And I think um, restaurant leaders need to, to need to remember that and start to think of new ways to attract talent, even if it's just the chop shop down the street, you know, the, the chop house down the street making steaks. How do you bring people in and make them feel good about their job uh, and, and then reward them with more than just money? Because believe it or not, money is not the only motivator. Yeah. There's so much more out there to yeah. us. Yeah. I mean, that, that goes back to that thing of, of yeah, figuring out, you know, what do, what do people want? It, it, again, I think this is, I see this as a marketing issue, right? That the, the whole key to marketing is figuring out who has a problem that needs solving and how are you uniquely qualified to solve the problem in a new way. And, you know, you finish that sentence and it's the same thing with, with restaurants, yeah. right? Like what do they need and how am I uniquely qualified to provide them with something they need? It is, it is, it's a marketing, it's a marketing issue. And I think you, there are a lot of things and I think this is what is happening. I think is that we're just not honest with ourselves as what people are looking for you know, we're still we're still operating from that. Come here, make money. And 20 years ago, I mean, the industry has moved huge, huge uh, ways in 20 years. Right. Like you can draw a direct line from the launch of Food Network to where we are now. Um, food culture in America mm -hmm. is is wildly different than it was in 1994. And uh, so the kind of people that it attracts and the kind of lifestyle it provides and promotes. And, you know, there was no you didn't go to school for it 20 years ago. 
you left high school, you, you staged if you wanted to be in uh, fine dining, you worked your way up from the bottom, you started as a, you know, dishwasher, a porter, a prep cook, a, you know, then moved to, you know, lunch and then garmage and then saute and grill and you worked your way up. And now you can go to school for it. Now you got, you know, now you got Cornell, big hospitality school. You can learn how to do it. <laughs> and so the perception has changed and we haven't changed all that much. The fact that uh, most restaurants don't offer benefits. No, most restaurants don't offer a 401k. Most restaurants don't have a, you know, a, a realistic, a reasonable PTO policy, right? It's, oh, you get minimum wage, you, you know, because most servers make sub-minimum wage because of the tip credit in most states. And so they bump you up to minimum right. wage. So in a lot of states in this country, that's 725. So to go on vacation, you're going to get 725 times 40 hours a week. Well, so suddenly you're then like, well, it's the money I spend to go on vacation, but then also the lost income, right? The opportunity cost of going on vacation. And I was certainly guilty of this for a very long time. I didn't take vacations because yep. it was like I was doubly hit. And, uh, and that really sucked back when I was, when I was waiting tables. So then all of this, use this to make this last pivot and talk about then how does all this relate to the patrons, the people you're trying to attract and, and building relationships, build, building better, stronger relationships with them? How, how does all your work kind of go back into that? Yeah, it, it all affects their experience and, and, what they, and, and, and what they perceive from the experience and how they develop that perception and the understanding and how that eventually positions you in their brain for future uh, um, opportunities to, to serve them. When your people, your your employees or your team, uh, whatever you want to call them, when they are happy and they understand the bigger picture and what their role is in it, they will provide a higher quality experience, just bar none. You know, so when they go on that vacation, a person that just came back from vacation has renewed vigor and energy. Um, they, they may not be excited that they're back at the grind, but they, they got a moment to take a breath. I think vacations, I say this to my people all the time, like take the vacation, take the day. You need a day, take the day. Um, regroup, get your mind right, come back. And inevitably they come back with better, stronger ideas and uh, eagerness to collaborate. Um, and that is felt by the patrons, the people, the, the other half of the patrons, the folks that come in and eat with you. Um, when they are engaged with on a way that makes sense uh, for the brand, and when they're getting food that is made to order like the way they want it, and when the atmospheres pop in the way it's supposed to, and everything aligns um, through that, you know, the lens of that strategy, everything's aligned. They they develop love, you know. They just th this is what develops. Like I love that place. I will go there again. I I want to tell my friends about. It. I want to bring them, um, and so everything you do results in how they perceive your brand and. You know, that's essentially what creates the brand is that experience and those perceptions. Um, I, I can't stress enough how how this industry needs to shift its focus and its perception of what the team is and their role, because those are your front line um, for lack of a better uh, uh, name. Those those are that's really your product. You know, they're the ones that bring the food. They're the ones that make the food. And if those people are unhappy you have no chance of creating an amazing experience. So then tell me, my last question here, uh, talk to me about the future of this industry because uh, you're obviously knee deep in it, uh, up to your ears in it. I, I'm the same and I'm really passionate about it uh, because I believe it can be better. I believe there are, there are ways we can get it there. So if that's one key way that, that you see it needs to move in the next little while, um, give me two others. What else needs to happen over the next, let's say 12 to 24 months 
Um, what, what needs to change about the industry and, and, and what are you seeing? How are you a part of that? What, what needs to happen? Yeah, that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> there's there's so much that needs to change. Uh, not, not that everything's broken. Uh, there, there's trends that I see happening as well. So I think what we're going to start to see more and more of is uh, streamlining of common processes using technology. Uh, whether that process is the ordering mechanism where you don't need counter help uh, or, the, or the idea of counter help uh, changes. Um, integration of technologies. We have a lot of different technologies out there that don't do a very good job of working together or speaking to each other. And I think there is a hunger, pun intended, uh, for leaders to get an ever-growing, more holistic understanding of patron behavior, um, who's buying what, when, why, and that knowledge. And I think we're going to continue to see convergences and integration there, and we need it. We need it desperately. And then I think we just need to parse out the viability of the standard go-to service models. And we see pioneers doing it um, already. I think in your neck of the woods, there's a, a dumpling shop that rebooted the automat. Um, and, and why yeah. is that a bad thing? You know, why we've been sold that we need no, someone I, to give this I to love us, it. right? Oh, I need chip to bring me my food. But more and more we don't. Um, and I, I was making this comment a few years ago at the uh, Fed summit um, where I was speaking. And I was just, I'm not knocking the wait staff. I'm not knocking counter staff. What I'm saying is if it's not remarkable, then it probably can be replaced by technology and probably should. And as this, you know, federal minimum wage threat continues to be a topic, um, you're, you're seeing brands already shift. The brands that have the means like McDonald's have already started well into their, you know, self-ordering kiosks. And the question is, is my experience better or worse? I argue much better. I don't need someone to be angry that I showed up to order, you know, to get the order wrong anyway. We're all very, most of us are very capable of tapping buttons, especially when there's a picture. And these kiosks are doing a better job at upselling, getting me to buy more, introducing me to new products. They're doing a much better job than someone on the counter is doing. And that doesn't mean that people don't have a role in this model. Their role is arguably better. Now what I need at my McDonald's is I need somebody who is tech savvy, who can troubleshoot technology issues. I need someone who can accentuate the experience by walking around saying, "Are you? is the ordering experience going well? Um, can I help you find something? You know, yada, yada. Now that becomes flavor on my experience as opposed to a hindrance, yeah. you know? Joseph, this is music to my ears. This is the big project uh, that I'm that I'm working on. It's funny, before we hit record, uh, Joseph and I were talking about, you know, kind of the, the directions, um, you know, where I was, where I am today is wildly different than where I was a year ago. It's wildly different than it was two years ago. This is the big project that I'm working on is, uh, is integrating, um, is integrating technology in all the different ways. Um, I've got a lot of tech partners, the sponsors that I work with here, uh, offering really compelling solutions to really important problems. And uh, and literally what I'm doing, I'll say the next 18 months of my life is all about rolling out, rethinking uh, the use of waiters for a bunch of different concepts. I'm working with a bunch of different brands on that because I feel the same way you do. You know, half a waiter's life is spent, uh, you know, writing down something, copying something down or regurgitating it into the computer. And we're all more than capable of doing that. McDonald's figured this out 12 years ago when they introduced the self-ordering kiosks. You put somebody at a computer. I tell that somebody, they type it into the computer. Well, at a certain point, they went, 
wait a minute, we can just type it in our computer because we're all um, we're all literate enough with computers, iPads, you know, smartphones. We understand touch screens, and like you said, they've optimized that experience to not only be more fun, so it's a better guest experience, but to be quicker to get your food out quicker, so you can again better guest experience and you can drive more revenue. Um, and it and the experience itself is optimized, uh, oftentimes ten to fifteen percent more revenue per order, which is like mind blowing when you look at. I mean, I'll ask the question here. Who could use 10% more revenue, you know, more top line revenue at the end of the year? You can imagine what number that was for, for McDonald's. It's huge. And so I think there are all kinds of solutions coming the way. And like you said, I think there are ways of using um, of using the human capital uh, in better, more respectful ways. Rather than copying stuff down and tapping it into a computer, we free them up from that task so they can actually be there to provide hospitality, to welcome, to greet, to upsell, to guide through the menu, to answer questions, to be there to anticipate that uh, when they're ready for another glass of wine, to be there to pour off that first glass of wine. Right? This is all better service that will also help drive more revenue um, and I think create you know a, a more fun experience for the employee. They feel like, oh, this is I'm doing stuff that, that nobody else can do. There's no computer that can do this. Um, I'm just using all of the different facets of what I do really well rather than copying stuff down and tapping it into the computer. Yeah. I mean, Im- imagine a world where uh, in- instead of having waiters who are also runners, you know, like with their head cut off, they're observers of the experience. And instead they're like the manager who walks around, how is everything today? Um, they're actually more meaningful. They actually mean it because they're not thinking I have to go grab that food soon, blah, 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 blah. Yep. But they can actually Oh, hey, Chip, I noticed that your wine's a little low. Do you want another glass? I'm going to go grab it for you. Like, it's just, it em- is better. It empowers, <laughs> it empowers teamwork, um, which if everybody's ordering on their phones or ordering on a table, you know, tabletop tablet, right? And somebody says, right. And, and again, it doesn't, it doesn't change. That first approach is, you know, hi, I'm, you know, welcome to restaurant XYZ. I'm Chip. I'll be taking care of you tonight. Uh, same thing, but then it's the next line that's different. You know, same thing, right? H- have you guys been here before or have you been here recently? And they say, oh, mm-hmm. no, it's been a while. I said, great. So we've moved now to table ordering. It's just a little bit different. It's going to be way better for your experience. Let me show you how it works. And they're there just like you'd be there to guide them through the menu, which I can't tell you the last time I was at an Applebee's and had somebody explain the menu or the last time I had any, you know, any server because they're running around like chickens with their heads cut off. But if I was there, I'd say, great, let me show you how this table ordering works. It's super easy. You just need a, you just need a guide the first time. And you make it fun, right? It's, I mean, it's easy. You see the fi- my five-year-old, right? The right waiter is going to go over and say, hey, what's your name? And he's going to say, oh, my name's Preston. Is it great? Do you want to order everyone's drinks? Let me show you how easy it is. Even the five-year-old could do it. And you better believe yeah. it that then that five-year-old, that eight-year-old is going to order everybody drinks all night long. You're going to say, hey, kid, get me another beer. Hey, get me another glass of wine. Order, you know, and just reorder. And, and then you don't have to wait and flag down the waiter. Then you don't have to grab the busboy to gro- grab the waiter. Then you don't have to wait until you see them. You order the drink when you're ready for the drink, and then it gets sent to the bar printer. Bartender starts making it, and then there are runners there, right? It's part of the steps of service that people know to always check off at service bar. Oh, these drinks are going to table 10. These drinks are going to table 22. These are going to 32. There's some finesse that's required to make all, all of these steps work, which is really what I'm working on. But I, I fundamentally believe this is going to be better. Not for every restaurant. It's not going to be appropriate for every restaurant. But I think there are plenty, thousands and thousands of uh, properties and concepts across this country where this just makes more sense. Um, Again, it's going to drive more revenue, cut uh, expenses, cut labor, and uh, provide a better guest experience. I am convinced of it. I'm so glad you said this. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, you're right. So for every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction, right? And 
I think you're going to see the concepts where it makes sense. They're going to embrace technology and they're going to start reformulating the restaurant experience. But that's not going to end the need for the high touch, um, you know, uh, high high hospitality experiences. Totally. For agree. instance, like here in Atlanta, there's a place called Kevin Rathbun's Steak. Um, Kevin Rathbun's a great guy. Most people have run into him if they go there frequently. Um, but the level of service there cannot cannot be replaced by technology and i will totally. say that bold statement uh but at longhorn steakhouse yeah you could probably you can probably uh, shift that i think again this is it's funny just a, a couple of weeks ago i did an episode about this and uh, and just said why do we take this one size fits all approach you know apply the same solution to all these different concepts right think about when you get waiter service right all the different levels of dining that you get waiter service like like why? And I, and I, and I agree with you. I think it will come to a place where it becomes a luxury. It's something you, it's part of the experience. And I don't think, I think we're going to have one style of waiter service for fine dining. And I think we're going to have these like mini managers, uh, for more casual concepts because we can, um, you know, we can create it, uh, we can create it better, um, with the introduction of some technology. Um, listen, Joseph, I really appreciate your time, uh, for taking the time out today. Um, Tell people, so what's going on? So you've got this Kickstarter that you've got going on for the book. Tell me about that. And then I want to talk about your podcast uh, because uh, I think it's really great. And you had me on as a guest the day after I had my second uh, vaccine shot. So I barely even remember talking to you because I had like a, <laughs> 103 fever. Um, so I hope I uh, was speaking coherently. Um, tell people about the book, the Kickstarter, and then the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. That's really impressive, by the way, because I didn't notice that you yeah, so, <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> high five on that. Um, yeah. So the, the, the book is written. It's edited. It's ready to go. Uh, I wanted to self-publish this. I did not want to go with a publisher immediately um, for many reasons. One, I think we'll do a better job of marketing it. And uh, I, I kind of wanted to own that a bit more. So we decided to kickstart this to cover the costs of initial production more than anything else, the audio version. I, I want to do an audio book. Uh, I do not intend to sit in a studio for two days reading this thing into a microphone. So I do want to find some talent to do that. Um, and then I also wanted to give away to do to, to give to the folks who support uh, me and, and Vigor. I want to give them more than just a book to buy. And so in this book, we have uh, I, I actually created illustrations that are collage based to illustrate the uh, bull stories. And I think they're quite lovely. Uh, I have some of them on my wall already. So we're going to print out lithography prints of those. I'm going to hand sign and number them. So there's limited edition. We won't print them again. And I think that's a nice way for people to have their favorite bull story as a reminder uh, to them. And there's a couple other things too that we're offering there. I think the most important one, uh, which I'm waiting for my mom to buy is uh, <laughs> for, I think it's $1,500. I, I will fly to wherever you are and hang out with you in a bull costume for one hour. <laughs> um, amongst other things. So I'll bring all the other things that come in that package and you can use that time for consulting, for drinking a beer, for having good laughs, whatever. Um, I'm surprised she hasn't bought that one yet, but, um, <laughs> but the idea is to get this in the hands of many people. And, um, if I can use our capital to market the book, um, then I feel like it'll go further than having to invest that money in the production of the book immediately. So, uh, we kickstarted it. We have at the time of this recording or 49 days left. We're about 20% funded. 
And so uh, there's many different levels. I think there's one for $10 or 20 bucks or something like that, uh, the whole way up to that that epic one. And, and we're just looking for support by way of pledge, social share, or both. Awesome. Yeah, and I'm excited about it. You you should be. Like I said, I got a preview copy of this book, and I, and I just read it over the past weekend, and it's fantastic. And I'm glad uh, that we could support the book and, and Joseph and what you're doing here on this podcast. Um, I appreciate you having me as a guest on your podcast. So we're going to include all these links uh, in the show notes so that people know where to go and how to get you. Um, talk quickly about the, the podcast that you launched. Yeah, it's called Fork Tales, uh, kind of like folk tales, but with a fork. And, and the whole reason behind it is having good conversations with industry leaders um, that I think are a mix of personality, journey, and insights. And so far, we have some fantastic people on, um, you know, uh, obviously, you, Chip, I think it's a great episode. There's a lot of like bits and pieces of knowledge in there. Um, but we had Kelly Valade from Black Box Intelligence on. Her, hers was fantastic. Um, Black Box is doing so much awesome stuff with data collection and parsing uh, for the restaurant industry. Uh, we have an episode with Paul Macaluso from Another Broken Egg uh, on that's coming up. Uh, we just had Greg Gulkin from Kitchen Fun. They, they uh, invested in Sweetgreen, Gregory's Coffee, EG's, um, Curry Up Now list goes on. So uh, I'm, I'm getting some great folks on here that are giving very macro thinking, but in a way that's digestible and I think actionable on the micro level too. Um, and the whole, the whole idea is just more inspiration, more ideas, um, more things to chew on to hopefully make uh, everyone in the, in the industry, smarter, better, and more informed. Yeah. Listen, uh, I'm so grateful that I've gotten to know you over these last uh, several months. I'm glad that we've been able to do this and, and network and, and share, uh, your ideas with my audience and, and hopefully your audience, uh, gets some value out of the stuff that I shared on your show. Um, I appreciate you, uh, sharing this book with me and I appreciate you giving a chance to, uh, to share some of your insights with the audience. Um, like I said, all of the, the links are going to be in the show notes. Uh, Joseph, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to, uh, to do this and chat with me today. Oh, thank you, Chip. This has been awesome, as always. I appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Joseph Zala. Again, another big thank you to Joseph for taking the time out of his day uh, to share some of his insights with all of us. Uh, if you're looking for something to do, some way to pay it forward, uh, please go find his Kickstarter campaign. That link is in the show notes. Uh, I've already uh, read the book uh, because he uh, he gave me an advanced copy, uh, but I went in and made a contribution anyway. I'm going to get my copy uh, later and, and one of these signed lithographs, uh, just a small way that I can pay it forward. I'm inviting you to pay it forward as well. Uh, if you want to pay it forward here to this community, you can go log a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, that's the one that really moves the needle here. Five-star rating and review. Let other people know uh, what you've gotten out of the show, what what you what you like about the show, uh, why it's worth listening to. I, I mean it, it. It really helps us with the rankings, which helps us grow this audience, which in the end uh, helps all of us. Uh, that's it. Thank you again for joining me today. Stay creative, and I will see you next time. Restaurant Strategy is made possible by the generous support of our sponsors as well as our Patreon supporters. A special shout out to all of our Gold and Platinum members, Ty Hames, Bob and Kate Carpenter, Scott Middleton, Chuck and Denise Close, Stephen and Ann Fagan, Mario Tomatos, and Christopher Tana. If you want to become a supporter, please go visit patreon.com slash restaurant strategy. Again, the link is in the show notes.